0: InDefensive Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash Their monthly contributions ensure that InDefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefenseofplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Now, if you've been listening to the bonus episodes over at patreon.com slash indefenseofplants, you might know that I've been on a bit of an azalea kick as of late because these are fascinating ericaceous shrubs they're also absolutely gorgeous if you've ever had the chance to walk around a habitat that has flowering azaleas it's an experience you'll never forget well today you're in luck because we are going to be celebrating this amazing group of deciduous rhododendrons with my friend patrick thompson He is the curator of special collections at the davis arboretum in auburn alabama He's also the coordinator of the Alabama Plant Conservation Alliance, and he has a special affinity for azaleas, and as you're going to hear, this is something that kind of just got dumped onto him at one point in his life. He never set out to be an expert on this group, but he has such a wealth of information, and I don't want to keep you from it any longer, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Patrick Thompson. I hope you enjoy. All right, Patrick Thompson, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to pick your brain today, but first, let's start by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
0: All right, my name's Patrick Thompson, and I'm a curator at the Davis Arboretum at Auburn University, and that's two-thirds of my 40-hour appointment every week, and the other third is as coordinator of the Alabama Plant Conservation Alliance. And so there is good overlap in those, fortunately. <laughs> and as curator there at the Arboretum, I work with the special collections. And for us, that's oaks, azaleas, carnivorous plants, trilliums. And then there's a, a whole outer ring of developing collections that I work with, too.
1: Very exciting.
0: The Alabama Plant Conservation Alliance work is focused on 20 project species that are on the edge of extinction. Ooh. And so we've got the point and oak as a project and then Alabama pitcher plants and uh, mountain green pitcher plants. So those are the three species that if I'm working on them, I'm working on both of my jobs at the same time. So
1: <laughs> Not a bad overlap there, huh? Not at all. Awesome. And so, obviously, plants consume a considerable portion of your life and uh, probably a lot more outside of working life as well. But where did it all begin for you? I mean, was this a lifelong obsession or something you kind of discovered later on in life?
0: Well, I've had a lifelong appreciation. My mom's always been a gardener and I come from gardening stock back nice all the way back to my great grandfather in germany who was apprenticed as a alpine stone garden wow apprentice like a, i think he was 8 years old when he started that before they moved to <laughs> pittsburgh but it's it's in my blood but nice. i went the reptile and amphibian route pretty mm-hmm. early on and was obsessed with reptiles since i got my first turtle when i was like 6 i had more and more and more pets and kind of fell into the collector's mentality and had <laughs> an exhaustive amount of animals (laughs) through my teenage years and it was it was fun yeah i I learned a lot but then in college i took a course on evolution and systematics from a professor named george folkerts and it really made me understand that i only understood half the world (laughs) it was like in a college class when i realized that flowers turn into fruits oh wow yeah, I was just totally in the dark <laughs> and I had been skunked on many a reptile hunting trip. But when you're looking for plants, hmm. you find one every time. Sure. So it was it was fun. And I always love field guides and identifying things. And so being in Alabama, I have not run out of new things to find and identify.
1: Yeah, you're in a a secret hotspot, as some of those articles like to say. But uh, it, it's 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 interesting, you know, seeing how far you've come. And obviously, you're not taking care of reptiles and amphibians every day. So when did you make the leap into being in the gardening world and the plant world professionally? I mean, was it just after that moment you kind of had a switch flip in your head, and you're like, "This is what I'm doing"?
0: I mean, it it really was just a switch flip. I was working at a pet store in the mall right by where Santa sets up i mean it was <laughs> it was a rough time in my reptile days yeah. and i was kind of over learning about them in college and yeah that semester i got a job as a student worker at the arboretum wow. and spent a couple years there as a student worker and then the semester after i graduated they were hiring the second full-time employee on staff so prior to my position being created, there was just one full-time person Hmm. who was the curator with student workers. And so having a second full-time person on site just opened a whole new world of possibilities (laughs) that the Arboretum really needed, being in the middle of the main campus of a big university. And uh, since then, we've added a third full-time employee. And so that's What has allowed us to expand into higher level curation of collections and conservation work and things like that. And so very much a right place, right time type of thing.
1: Certainly. And it does seem like Auburn especially is dabbling in a lot of really important conservation work. And it's exciting to see, you know, an arboretum with the space and with the talent going that direction because it's nice to walk around a nice park like setting and see a pretty magnolia blooming or something like that but it is so much more to have living collections that are serving a function for conservation for education for biodiversity in general i mean that's that's pretty impressive so it sounds like there's a heavy native focus too within the arboretum
0: yeah so our mission is Alabama and adjacent states <laughs> We, we make some exceptions for things like Venus fly traps. You know, we can, we can reach out <laughs> into some Southeastern bogs for sure. things that get people excited. But we've really hard that mission even down to just Alabama plants because when I first started, I mean, it was hard to even get a grasp of what all was an option for the collection. There wasn't Man. the Alabama plant atlas online that you could just go to and see where the counties were. Nature Serve hadn't published their big biodiversity. Thing stating that Alabama was a hot spot for it. And uh, since then, we've been able to see all those great maps on bone apps that overlap all the ranges and really <laughs> show us those hot spots for biodiversity in a way that, you know, those were tools we didn't have when I started working in the Arboretum. Right. And so it's been a, a really good time to be in that position.
1: Yeah. It's amazing to think how recently those came on board because now, I mean, so many people fall back on those, but it wasn't that long ago where, like you said, they weren't available. And even so you think about like what could be out there, what is still needing data. There's so much more work to be done. And that's where, you know, having these split positions and having people like you on board really helps make these things trickle in because no one organization or group can tackle it all at once. Well,
0: yeah. And that's been one of the great things for me to be a part of is through the association of public gardens, America, they have a plant collections network. And so when that first started coming online around like 2006, 2007, Oaks was one of their first hmm. multi-institutional collections that they were certifying. And, you know, we had 20 something Oaks in the collection. And hmm. so I emailed the director, Pam Allenstein. And I was like, Hey, I noticed you guys have gardens in the Northeast and on the West coast. You need somebody to represent these oaks in the southeast. And she said, oh, yes, that's on our list of things we need. And had a mentor come over from actually from Birmingham Botanical Gardens. Oh, nice. And he looked at the collection and he said, you guys have a lot of promise, but you got a long way to go. And so that was pretty much what I needed to hear at right. that time. You know, he asked to see our database and I went and got the uh, little metal box of note cards. <laughs> had like 200 trees names in there. Not all of them still live, but <laughs> the, the real lesson was we had some educational value and some aesthetic value with having this postage stamp collection of individuals of mm-hmm. a lot of species of oaks. But they basically said we need to go out and recollect the entire collection.
1: Wow. That,
0: you know, it, it is good to have these things with that educational value. If you're teaching people their tree species, great for forestry students, great for horticulture students. But... To go ahead and underplant replacements that have that scientific value, that mm. conservation value, and research value, and just go ahead and get things growing that have full detailed provenance information. And I thought twenty something oaks was a lot. We <laughs> only learned like fifteen in my horticulture class, but then to find out there's like thirty nine in the state of oh, Alabama. Boy, yeah, <laughs> we we finally have all thirty nine in the collection now. Congrats! That was, that was a lot of work.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And and making them, like you said, scientifically valuable collections and conservation value collections is its own level of intrigue and interest uh, that we could probably have you back on to talk about. But the other part of your collection, which I think is one that really puts you all on the map in addition to things like Alabama oaks and and the wild diversity of them, are the azaleas. And it sounds from some of our correspondents earlier on that that you know, was another one that just kind of was like, oh, hey... I guess we're doing this, right? For you, at least.
0: Right. And so there was a retired professor who had been in a group of guys that had been breeding azaleas for decades in the area. And so it was already a local tradition and these plants were all around. And he came and said, hey, would you like all of these wonderful hybrids we've been selecting for decades? And he said, uh, we kind of stick to straight species here. And he said, okay, so what do you need? Whoa. And because I had already had that communication with the plant collections network, I knew what we needed was detailed provenance information, do one thing, do it right. And so I said, all right, how about Alabama's in Seems like I want to do. Rhododendron alabama If we could get a representative from every county in the state where it occurs, hmm. that would be amazing. Which, you know, kind of sounds like, Busy work for a nice retired professor, but (laughs) that's not what it was. It was a fireball passion project. And he already had a dozen counties worth of accessions in his yard that, you know, he could pin on a map where he got them from. And he was a fisheries professor, a fish Hmm. geneticist. Hmm. And so he did things like mapping the genome of the catfish and brought tilapia to the U.S. Wow. Big, big stuff like that. But he was also up and down the creeks of Alabama, looking at all these hybrid azaleas, and so that's what had sparked his interest in this genetic mishmash that we live in, and inspired him to start crossing plants to try to reproduce things that he had seen in the wild that he couldn't key out. Wow, he was he was well informed, but had connections all over the state because he'd been graduating students into (laughs) conservation and land management (laughs) jobs, so he knew exactly who to call, you know different agencies and individuals to get all these things so it only took him a couple years to get us what is the largest collection of wild sourced rhododendron albomenzi in the world wow and so that was not a hobby gardener but a next level hobby gardener that brought all these amazing things to us and i mean it's more than we could have ever done on our own
1: that's absolutely wild, and that's why I love. I mean, I'm sure you find it in most communities within any hobby, but like the gardening community, especially, is you get people that are so not in that field that have devoted probably more time than a lot of professionals have <laughs> to massing mm-hmm. collections and documenting, and and like the wealth of data. You know, it's not this repository that's like uh, a database somewhere on a server or you know files in a cabinet somewhere in a college. It's literally someone. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, I do this in my spare, quote unquote, spare time. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's like the filing is in their head if they're, you know, have that kind of mindset. But it's it's impressive to find that. And it seems like azaleas really do attract that type of, of hobbyists.
0: Yeah, and we're at a serious inflection point in the amount of wild material that's out there, because these are the people that were around for the last, you know, 50, 60, 70 years that are getting 80, 90 years old now that have this amazing information in their head and in their gardens, these yeah. living collections. And so, you know, say do a gap analysis on the deciduous azaleas in public collections. You would find that there's not a lot of documented hmm. material out there, but the materials out there is just not in large, accessible, <laughs> reported collections. And these things were taken out of the wild and that's not something we recommend anymore. Sure. But at the time, that was the way they did it fifty years ago. Right. And so they're in people's gardens. And I think that could be done better. And that trend continued, you know, by communicating with local gardens and building up projects and collecting seed instead of digging plants and sharing it, getting good documentation of permissions and source information. <laughs> and expanding that meta collection from just public gardens to private gardens as well. Right. And there's a lot of work in there, but there's also a lot of hobby gardeners out in the world. I mean, the carnivorous plant community does Uh it to a T. I mean, they know where their plants came from. They have multiple, multiple clones from single sites and then the hybrids between them. And so there's models out there that we can follow and improve upon to I think really really help these azaleas become something on the landscape again because they're not good at moving back into neighborhoods Hmm. they're not going to blow in like a grass or an aster they like mature forests but as all of our suburbs grow up let's put them underneath those trees
1: yeah sometimes with a lot of those uh I guess, more conservative species, sometimes it just takes a helping hand and to get them back into the mix is uh, an exciting idea. But let's back up a little bit. I mean, this is something that kind of went from zero to 60 in your life. And, you know, did you have a concept of azaleas kind of growing up? And then when you were introduced to this idea of like being able to put together a proper collection of Alabama azaleas, I'm sure like the amount of information and, and understanding had to grow exponentially with you. So like, what was sort of early days your realization about azaleas? Like, what are they? Where do they fit into the greater scheme of plant, uh, the, the taxonomic tree of life? And what defines an azalea exactly?
0: Well, here in Alabama, we are very azalea spoiled, and so <laughs> to almost everyone here, it's just the foundation planting of buildings That's oh. what azaleas are. <laughs> but really, those are non-native evergreen Asian azaleas. Mostly white, some some pinks and purples thrown in there. But my mom had a single Florida azalea by our little hmm. fish pond in the backyard, and so it was a great plant. I mean, it was a 15 foot orange wow. ball of fire every once in a while. It was amazing when it would come into bloom. And so I did know one of those plants personally. And then in the woods right behind our house, there was Piedmont azaleas and Alabama azaleas. So. Hmm. I'd seen more more pink and more white azaleas out in the woods, but I didn't know that they were azaleas <laughs> until, you know, I was at the Arboretum years into my stay there before I really started understanding oh, wow. the level of diversity in the state and starting to really recognize the shrubs. And so for the first few years, it was just maintaining a tree collection. But then <laughs> once we got some of the weeds out from under them, there was a lot of room to plant things. And so we started building that woody shrub collection. And we had started that with a guy named Daniel Neal that kind of made the prototype for my full-time position while I was hmm. a student worker. So it was still, I was a student worker. We went to uh, Lazy K Nursery and brought back a whole lot of azaleas and made clusters of, you know, nice southeastern flowering shrubs. Nice. And so I did have a little bit of a grasp on it before R.O. Smitherman Smitty, as the retired professor, <laughs> showed up, you know, offering us the world and spent five years putting it in. But it was with Smitty that I really got a grasp of those plants because he took me to the places, he introduced me to the people, and I was I was in. Them.
1: <laughs> what a wonderful indoctrinate or someone to bring you into the fold, I guess. Uh, you're getting the ultimate crash course in what this this genus can do.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was it was really eye opening. But I still, you know, continue to learn more yeah. just constantly. And there's, there's a lot to learn about them still. I mean, basic natural history stuff that we don't have depends on You, how long do they live? <laughs> Where is seedling recruitment happening in the wild and why isn't it more commonly observed? Wow. You know, how many taxa are there in the wild?
1: So okay.
0: there's a lot, of, a lot of big questions in the azalea world here in the Southeast still to answer.
1: Which is fascinating because, like, as a group of plants, I'm not talking necessarily the native ones, you know, these are well established in the horticultural world, at least to some extent, and people will readily use words like rhododendron and azalea. But, I mean, growing up, for instance, I just lumped them all together. I thought it was kind of either all the same plant and some of them just happened to lose their leaves. And then for a while, I thought azalea was its own genus. So... (laughs) You know, there's (laughs) it's kind of for a
0: while Azalea was its own genus, man. Okay,
1: okay. I wasn't wrong for a while.
0: (laughs) No, no, Linnaeus described that genus, but it was later lumped in with rhododendron. And so yeah, I guess I dodged your question a little bit back there. So what is an Azalea? There's constant reshuffling (laughs) of the taxonomy underneath the genus Rhododendron. And so the things that we call azaleas have been put in different places at different times. Uh, most recently, the deciduous azaleas are going to be in the subgenus Pentanthera, okay, and the evergreen azaleas are going to be in the subgenus Tsutsusi, And there's exceptions to all rules, and so if I <laughs> try and say something definitive here, then you know there's Fair easy enough. ways to disprove it. But most of the time, azaleas, especially in Pentanthera, have five anthers. Pentanthera, and our rhododendrons have ten, oh. and so. My my world is very Alabama centric. So here in Alabama, the rhododendrons are evergreen. That's little R rhododendron. <laughs> and the Azaleas are deciduous if okay. you're in the wild. Okay. Okay. And so then it all bets are off once you get into cultivated material. Oh geez. And you in Southeast Asia, there's you know, these varreas that are epiphytic vining plants or like almost orchid like really soft tissued things that die back to a hard root every year and or trees like rodent engine racks that are 30 meters tall you know i mean it's it's an extremely diverse genus we'll we'll see how long it holds up yeah
1: yeah that's uh sounds like someone will go in there and just start splitting and cutting and moving and (laughs) reigniting old names that you know that sort of stuff but you know it is fascinating to me that you can have a group that is really horticulturally valuable. You can have people like Smitty that are completely enamored with it and have devoted umpteen years to just that group of plants, and then have such a great representative in a state like Alabama of myriad species and their hybrids, which we can get into in a little bit. But yet there is so much mystery. And I think you know, kind of in my dabbling, it sounds like there was a lot of people treating these a little bit like specialty plants, like, oh, they're really difficult. Don't even bother. It's not worth trying, like maybe try a hybrid. So it seems like the attention was really kind of pushed towards maybe a handful of selections and cultivars. And then all the rest just kind of fell into the background as these kind of finicky, uh, you know, special plants that uh, maybe the average person, they were just hands off for.
0: Right. And it's, easy to do. You know, you get <laughs> this one azalea that roots really well and that gets into the trade and it grows really well. And that's probably Admiral Sims from the Confederate series. That's the one my mom had by her yard. I mean, mm. it, it grows like a weed. And most of the azaleas you try to root a cutting of aren't going to do well. Hmm. They're going to be a little bit challenging. <laughs> and nurserymen like things that grow well. Mm. I mean, it makes... It makes their job more doable, but there are some niche growers that do wonderful work with these difficult to grow plants and tissue culture has made it a lot easier to Mm. get some of these, you know, unique plants into production that won't root. And so there's workarounds, people do things to get things in, but I think we need to understand that you can't keep making better plants if you don't have a gene pool to pull from So while I totally encourage people to make new, better, more exciting plants to bring people in, you know, it's good entry-level stuff has to be there or people aren't going to get into it. Right. in addition to making those big, pretty plants, you got to maintain your gene pool to go back to it. And so there's a, a little story with that where in the, you know, 1700s, early 1800s, People in Europe are really excited about American plants, right? Mm. Arterum was sending things over. They were getting distributed from England through Europe. And in Belgium, they started breeding these things, incorporated one of the deciduous species from Asia, Rhododin Mali. And then there's a single deciduous species in Europe, Rhododin interludium.
1: Hmm. And
0: so they combine those with these natives from the U.S., which the names don't really even match up to what we call them now, so it's kind of hard to look back at those breeding oh, records.
1: fun. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, I mean, sure, Rhododendron Coleman, I could have been in that breeding pool, but that didn't get described until 2011. Oh. So like you're, you're not going to see it in the 1700s breeding records. What a gap. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a gap there. But they made these huge flowered, you know, doubled, hardy, all these wonderful variations on this theme in Europe. But if you try to bring them back to Alabama and plant them, the Nap Hill hybrids and the Ghent hybrids, they just melt in our summer heat. Mm. So Smitty would take these things from England, like the Gibraltar and Klondike were two of his favorite cultivars that were from the early 1900s. So later in that selective breeding program. Okay. And bring them back to Alabama, flower them out. You can get pollen off of them for a couple of years before they melt away. And so then he would take that pollen and cross back to a straight rhododendron austrinum that still has all of that original heat tolerance that you need to survive in the South and put that heat tolerance back in with these attractive traits for these flowers. And then you get something that's kind of in the middle. It Hmm. still has big, pretty flowers, but it also has the heat tolerance. And that was not a random or like thing they made over a thousand crosses targeting at more than a or about a hundred was what they tried to go out for each cross so we're talking about a hundred (sighs) thousand seedlings they selected from and this was several gardeners you know spread around over
1: yeah but (laughs) still
0: (laughs) and so they they gave us a top 25 list when they started bringing these plants to the arboretum and so from that top 25 we've got like five into production and so selling those plants has helped us get some more momentum working on off-site nursery with the arboretum got a glass house up wow and so we we're we we're moving forward through funding provided by these hybrids and so that was smitty's vision for the arboretum he wanted he was a big auburn fan wanted the arboretum mm. to be the number one garden in the sec and so <laughs> By giving us all these plants and all this breeding, it allows their work to live beyond them, but also goes back and funds conservation and education work. And so for those reasons, we did allow Smitty and Tom Corley and Dennis Rouse and Caroline Dean's selections into our collection to share with the Auburn family.
1: That's a remarkable story because there's so much buried in there in terms of like dedication and time and effort and really just insights into what this world is all about. Uh, and it it first it, it amazes me to think of all of the selection going on with North American species, especially species that can occur in warmer southern climates happening in the UK. And just wrecking their ability to tolerate the climates under which their parents evolved. But then you bring this back and you have people that are are upset by that, rightfully so, and dedicating their time and effort and space. Oh, my God, the space. Like mm-hmm. To think of all of that and then the numbers you just described and timeframes that you just described to get a fraction of that to be something that they feel proud enough to put a name on to slap their uh you know sort of pedigree on and say like no this is worthy of being spread around the world but then to have the foresight and the dedication to this cause to say okay we realize that this isn't necessarily in our mo these aren't straight species this isn't necessarily like inherently an alabama thing but we have the effort here to not only get people interested, but use some of that recurring revenue to then fund additional work on, on well, largely probably what it seems like is a group that desperately needs more study in that state or probably in this continent in general.
0: Yeah. And speaking to that selection process, the ones that they were able to put their stamp on and say it's worth growing, a lot of time were just the ones that survived. And so a lot of those processes... <laughs> They were incompatible crosses. And wow. so that's data that we have. We have you know, a stud book that's inches thick Ooh. where they detailed all of these hybridizations and germination rates and everything. I mean, these are retired professors. I mean they're they're very scientific. <laughs> right. And and it's amazing the handwritten notes. I mean they were Beautifully, beautifully written. It's, it's a work of art share with sometimes. Yes, please. But, but anyway, and then even those ones that were compatible crosses, because you're bringing in genetics that were developed in a different habitat, you know, it's rainy 300 days a year there and cool. Here, it's rainy a lot of the time, but hot. Yeah. And so a lot of those seedlings wouldn't even survive. And so you whittle it down pretty quick. Okay. And then things that were, you know, alive in 1985 to make it to, 2012 is when we started bringing those into the Arboretum. I mean, that's a pretty long period just to have to survive in Alabama. And so a lot of them just didn't make it, couldn't be propagated. And so these guys were not retired horticulture professors. So right. they had to deal with the challenges of propagation too. So these ones that made it through have, have survived several levels.
1: <laughs> so strong filter, but you know, at least they, there's time on your side in terms of uh, throwing, what the climate of that area can throw at them. But just the patience alone, uh, to me, I mean, plant breeding in and of itself is really fascinating because it's, you know, it's an experiment and sort of mixing and matching and seeing what's possible. Like you mentioned, some are not even compatible, but when it comes to plant breeding, I think the woody plant breeders are among the most amazing to me just because of the sheer amount of time. I mean, these aren't necessarily taking 50 years to get to flowering size, but it's still an investment of time to go from a seedling to something that you can even begin to understand, okay, what are these flowers going to look like? And then on top of that, what is the overall shrub going to look like? What's its form going to be? I mean, that to me is the most, like the, one of the best examples of patience and dedication to a cause I can possibly think of as someone like myself, who is kind of working hard on the whole patience thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I'm still seeing the results of Smitty's work For the first time, I mean, this year I saw seedlings flower that he crossed in 2011. Oh, wow. And he passed away in 2014, I think. And so there was a lot of shuffling of plants and things have been moved from here to there. And, you know, I was learning how to grow these plants out, but they're now what's left of the (laughs) crosses he made in 2011 are in beds. Growing up, we're seeing their forms, seeing some of their flowers for the first time. And, you know, that was his, you know, swan song. I mean, just building his knowledge every time. And he would be so excited about, oh, what do you think this one's going to look like? Oh, what do you think Uh this should do this? Maybe it'll do this. I don't know. So he was was excited about how those plants are going to turn out. So I still get excited every time I see a bud set. And then, you know, you see a bud on a plant in June of one year they're going to carry them through the winter. And so it might be March, might be July before you see that thing open
1: up. <laughs> wow. So yeah, so, you you get like little treats and little presents and especially having your own connection to this person and, and having that legacy live on to be able to see how excited he was about it and connect that to what you get to see. Uh, that's got to be a, a pretty like heartfelt moment when those things finally pop. Oh yeah.
0: Especially with 14 extra months of anticipation on top of it <laughs> after years of waiting for them.
1: Oh, man. I do enjoy a little anticipation, but yeah, that's uh that's considerable.
0: But yeah, the woody plant breeders are something else. Nah. I definitely appreciate every time I see one of those flowers, the decades of work that were handed to me. I mean, you know, most people are standing on the shoulders of giants sure. to get where they are, and so it's just exactly an example of that.
1: Yeah. And so with that in mind, I mean, you mentioned there's crosses that are compatible, crosses that aren't compatible. And then you think about like even within the Alabama native azaleas out in the wild, there seems to be just endless variation and possibility for hybrids. So is this a group where we're just starting to get our head wrapped around like what is even a species concept with azaleas or is it just another call for how much we still have to learn about this group of plants?
0: Well, I, I think it's both. It's one of those groups of plants where the species concept breaks down pretty quick. <laughs> you start trying to look at who's who and where the gene flow is. And, you know, it's just an arbitrary line between things on a taxonomic tree. And so it's hard to say where that line is. You know, just depends on who's writing the paper, where they decide to draw that line. <laughs> yeah. And so in these populations, we're coming up with a whole lot of variables that they haven't had to deal with for millions of years. Mm. You know, climate change, separation of these populations, loss of pollinators. And one of the main things that we're trying to do as public gardens is to limit the genetic bottleneck that a lot of these species are going through. And we've already started that loss of genetic diversity. You know, I mean, development, forestry, all of these things are seriously affecting the number of plants left on the landscape. And one of those tinkerers rules, you know, if you're going to take apart a part of watch and you want to put it back together and expect it to work, you don't want to lose any parts. <laughs> yeah. And we're already losing parts. And so just being able to know what's where and having it exist in the wild is one thing. But if that plant is working its way to the top of a mountain, like so the Cumberland Azaleas on Mount Cheetah, Alabama's highest point, they can't crawl down the mountain and crawl up to the next mountain very well. Right, And so there's even things that we haven't really brought into discussion on extremely endangered plants, like assisted migration of these genetics, but it's extremely likely that the genetics that are down here in Alabama for like that Cumberland azalea are going to have high heat tolerance Mm. and they may need that in the Kentucky populations, you know, in a few years, if things get warmer, and making sure that we have as many parts of these plants' genetic diversity intact is gonna be required to keep them moving forward through time because it's a challenge to be a plant these days. I mean, there's a lot going on. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is unfortunately a common thread through most of the conversations I have with people there, you know, unless you're talking about like invasive species or some of the stuff that really likes disturbance, that's the only times you hear someone like, oh, yeah, they love it. They're doing great out there. Mm -hmm. But with that in mind, it's, it's alarming just because of, again, all of those unknowns within, say, the Alabama azaleas or just azaleas in North America. And if you're losing parts before you can really understand what was there, what was the potential, you don't want to get to that point where you're like, oh, we have two genetic individuals left or one genetic individual left and guess what everyone in accession is a clone of that one you know it's that's the right. kind of conservation nightmare that had we known uh we could have fixed you know relatively easily but that kind of goes back to what you were talking about with making these collections viable making them good for conservation and, and breeding and all of that fun stuff is is provenance. understanding? which counties these came from where is maybe the southern distribution of this and how can we use that to see how they work with the northern distribution of that species and that's where like having a collection is more than just one or two plants that look nice tucked in in the garden it's it's having enough to make this viable and and something that can be useful when it's needed
0: yeah and it's pretty much impossible to fit all of that into a public garden <laughs> and maintain it you know yeah We really just need to like crowdsource this (laughs) citizen science effort and get people to grow these things in their garden and communicate with, you know, not at the public garden level every time, but I mean, the Azalea Society of America has this great legacy program where they are sponsoring or where different chapters will sponsor a breeder and maintain records and plants from a breeding collection to make sure that person's work doesn't fade away. And it translates really easily to species. And they also have a great seed exchange that goes back decades of, you know, it's wonderful, wonderful source information on specific species and different phenotypes that people do have these in their collections because they, you know, exchange these seeds and grow them out. And they are orthodox seeds. They store well for a Hmm. long time. They're pretty plants. I mean, these azaleas have a lot going for them. So if they can't make it through, it's scary. This, this is one of the closer things we have to charismatic megaflora to work with around here, you know?
1: <laughs> totally. I mean, I, I saw a picture in a document I think you sent me of someone's, you know, breeding collection and it you know, you looked out into the woods and it was just a single picture, but just the variety of colors in a non-designed garden setting was jaw-dropping. And to think that this could be something everyone hypothetically could go out and and maybe have a stake in, you know, bring a plant home. You know, you look at like what's going on over in the UK and people, citizens, average citizens can have national collections in their care with proper monitoring, with proper reporting. You know, Mm -hmm. this doesn't have to be like poaching and moving around. You don't have to think about it in these like super black and white kind of ways. You know, getting people involved, that to me is really exciting because it puts a a stake in a much wider group of hands than just a handful of scientific professionals and institutions that, you know, maybe seem a little like out of bounds for, for the average person that, you know, might be able to have a stake in this.
0: Well, and actually that collection that you're referring to is a collection of probably the only group of the only named hybrid deciduous azalea in the eastern U.S., Huh. So, the only thing recognized by the USDA is rhododendron x bakera. Okay? okay. And so, we mentioned the Cumberland Azalea, rhododendron Cumberland NC, but that used to be rhododendron bakera. And so, this, this little story is just about how challenging it is <laughs> to identify these plants properly. Okay. So, Lemon and McKay wrote a paper describing the small red azalea from the mountains of North Georgia and surrounding mountains. And at the same time, Catherine Braun wrote a paper describing the same plant and she called it Rhododendron cumberlandensi and they called it Rhododendron (laughs) bakeri. Turns out that these guys had gone and pressed a specimen of a small red azalea named it Rhododendron bakeri, but what they actually had was a hybrid between flamium and Canescens, which co-occurs with Cumberlandensi at this site. Oh jeez. And so everybody called it Bakeri until like 10, 15 years ago, it got reclassified as Cumberland because Catherine Crone and her PhD work went and looked at the specimen, you know, the herbarium voucher, the type specimen, and said, No, this isn't Cumberland This isn't this isn't that red thing that grows in the mountains. <laughs> Captain Braun named this properly. And so then Baker Eye became ex Eye. And it was a hybrid between two species, neither of which were the one they were trying to describe. <laughs> and so over in Noonan, Georgia, there is a collector who, with her husband, they knew a lot of people that had forestry land. And whenever an area was going to be timbered, they would go in. And that was their weekend thing was to get azaleas out from in front of the timber crews wow. and put them on their property. And so it's a lot of rhododendron flamium, but then a whole lot because they like the fancy colors when they get mixed up. So a lot of that rhododendron ex bakery And so that's huh. rare in cultivation, only in the last you know 20 years recognized as a named hybrid, but it's the only recognized named hybrid in these eastern deciduous caesaleas. And it was because of a mistake.
1: Wow. wow. So many questions there. I mean, in terms of just recognition, I mean, there's got to be other hybrid events, especially when you start thinking about, you know, chopping up and moving things around and, and really altering ecosystem structure where there would have probably been some barriers. Now there's no barriers, that sort of thing. So, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of this going on sort of out of sight, out of mind. It's just a matter of like getting to the point where you have enough data to say, no, we can pinpoint what this is.
0: I, I don't think it's about getting enough data. I think no. it's about getting enough botanists. <laughs> I mean, it's not nice. hard to walk to a hill in Alabama and say, there's rhododendron albamense growing on the top, blooming white. And there at the bottom of the hill in the creek, there's rhododendron canescens blooming pink, and there's integrates all up and down the slope. Huh. The and right here in Lee County, we have the Plumleaf azalea blooming red in the summertime, on tributaries of things like the Halawaki, rhododendron arborescence blooming on the main channel and at the mouths of these tributary creeks. Mm. Caroline Dean documented these hybrids, didn't put a name on them, but took pictures, wrote about where they are. And so, I mean, we know where they are. Yeah. Just a lot of botanical work to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that also is, is something that doesn't get mentioned enough, uh, it, at least around people that have a somewhat interest in how taxonomy works, is just the effort it takes, the amount of time it takes, and, and you know, you got to be somewhat sure of this stuff. Uh, you know, again, you can see this with your, your naked eye and at least know if you have familiarity with both species and their distribution. It's like, oh, okay, but yeah, I mean, my, my friend Paul, the other day, I, I asked him, I was like, oh, do you still have, like, voucher specimens from years past? that you haven't gotten around to IDing yet. He's like, I've got 25 years worth of voucher specimens I still have to get to. I was like, oh, okay. That's what happens when there's like three botanists <laughs> for mm-hmm. a huge area and, and so much effort. Especially, you know, again, it's it's really worth reiterating just how diverse Alabama's flora is. So <laughs> it's uh, you got your work cut out for you down there.
0: Yeah. And so there are certain things that are on the brink of extinction, like those pitcher plants, that you know, we're counting every individual plant in every population and we're, you know, doing maternal line tracking of every individual. So we are putting tons of resources into this work because the bottleneck is already so tight.
1: Right. But
0: these azaleas are further up the curve. They're not at that point yet where we have to be terrified to let gardeners work with them, you know, Yeah. because there's still material out there. And the sooner you start conserving it, the better. I mean, you don't want to get down to right. where you don't know recovery is going to happen or not. You, you want to get as much as you can early,
1: right? Because I mean, that's really been the story of conservation oh, since its in, in inception. Really, has just been, oh, had we thought about this 10, 15 years ago? And that's what I hear constantly from you know the older botanists in this state is, you know, had I known the super common plant when I was a kid was going to be one of the hardest ones to find today. We would have started work back then and gotten it on the farm, gotten it, you know, going that way. And now you just think of like the potential to lose that kind of stuff. This is really where that kind of work with getting people involved in plants that aren't necessarily the rarest of the rare, but definitely could use a bit more attention and use more space to kind of expand out, have new areas to grow. And then, yeah, if you do it the right way, you have records, you have communication going on and protocols in place that's when you can start calling on that network of growers to assuage an issue that doesn't need to happen in the first place.
0: That's right. And these are really long-lived plants. And so, I mean, once you get them established in the ground here in Alabama, they are adapted to survive. Hmm. And so, I mean, we're talking decades and decades. Like I said earlier, we don't really even know how long these things live. Yeah, And same thing with pitcher plants. As long as we've been tracking single individuals, Those are still alive. Wow. They've been out there for 50, 60 years now. That's exciting. Still there. Yeah. You can get a long-term return on this stuff. And getting people to add value to their collections, you know, with these, we already have aesthetic value. With native species, you always get easy ecological value. Mm -hmm. Those are huge. So just putting those in the ground anywhere is worth encouraging. But then, yeah, getting the conservation and even scientific value on top of that is a whole other thing. While I've got ecological value on my tongue, let me make this point that I have lived with these hybrids in the Arboretum for a while, and the herbivores are not selecting against those. Okay. Like our caterpillars in the fall, they'll eat the hybrids with luteum and molly just as well as they eat all of our straight species. The butterflies and bees, they get their nectar from them the same as they do from the straight species. And so side-by-side common garden experiment. I think these things are still performing important ecological functions.
1: That is super encouraging. And I kind of was hoping we'd go down the ecological route because these are, you know, beyond just being aesthetically beautiful and scientifically fascinating, like very ecologically valuable plants to have on the landscape, both in floral resources, vegetative resources, and habitat structure in and of itself. Like the shrubs really, yes. But yeah, it's also really, really cool to be in a position like yours where you can see cultivated selections, hybrids right next door. And see those interactions play out to know that we're not necessarily, uh, you know, you worry with a lot of like garden variety stuff that you're sterilizing the landscape a bit by putting it in. But it is encouraging to hear that there doesn't seem to be a lot of discrimination among local uh, native fauna to uh, jump on and, and utilize these plants as well. But the other part of it, too, is like some of those selections, some of those really nice ones are just like weird one offs or a, an odd morph too of, of a straight species. Like, is it Millie Mac or something like that, mm-hmm. which is a straight species which just looks so wildly different than, uh, you know, the, the described species that it is, I guess.
0: Yeah. And it's a limb sport of rhododendron austrinum that was collected in southwest Alabama. Okay. And it still reverts back to a straight austrinum pretty often. I have to oh. snip the orange flowers off mine. The mutation is for a white pica border okay. around the edge of this yellow flower. And so it is a really striking you know, chance mutation. And it's actually a sport that throws off different sports. And so huh. there's solid white ones that have come off of it. And the seedlings are real variable. But austrinum is a, is a big, interesting bag. There's lots of variability in there that it's just starting to get credit for.
1: That's exciting. But yeah, I mean, things are using... So, like, for instance, I see countless pollinators visiting the flowers of a variety of species when they're in bloom. But there's also, you know, I think of, like, the aracaceous stuff as being a little bit harder to eat, but there's still plenty of insects that munch on the foliage. There's, what, the dagger moth, which has such a cool-looking caterpillar. And I think in one of your talks, you said that's, like you're banking food for the birds next year or something like that. It was really cool to hear it put in that context. Again, making sure that people know that their gardens can be good for conservation, but also good for the ecology of the region as well.
0: Yeah. And if you discourage the dagger moths with some type of systemic insecticide or something, then you have to watch your deciduous azalea go brown and crunchy and look all sad in the fall. They usually show up in October and defoliate these things right before the foliage just falls off anyway. Hmm. So it's it's a pretty well timed ecological event, but the uh, pollinator timing is a subject that I think somebody should really get into. I was in the field last week with a student from the University of Florida that's looking at pollinators, and we were looking at Rhododendron prunifolium. I took her to some here in Lee County, and you know she was evaluating numerous things, but our discussion got to you know how important a small tree is because these Plumiphyseae they can get over 20 feet tall you know, with a trunk that's, you know, four or five inches across. So wow. this is a small tree pumping out nectar for butterflies and bees and all kinds of hummingbirds, all kinds of things in the middle of the summer when there's not a lot in bloom, especially, you know, large, vigorous nectar pumping things. Right. And if you go wider and look at all these azaleas, you've got things that are stoloniferous patches up on top of rock outcrops. You've got things that are flowering in the deep shade mm. and the time span they cover you know is down in florida they're starting in february march april you get thousands of them in bloom all over the place but then there's also these summer bloomers that keep the bloom calendar dragging out so we've got plum leaf and arborescens blooming now here in lee county and some of our plum leaves go into november and same with And so that's tree-sized nectar producing and pollen producing plants flowering throughout the summer into the fall so it's really good bridge for those pollinators that you know, I, I haven't found any research that points to the value of that.
1: Huh. Yeah. A lot of potential there. And that's exciting because having worked in the area of Southern Appalachia that I have, it's really just springtime to me. You know, you get a little bit of like extended play with some of these flowers at higher elevations, but it's nice to know that with a breadth of species, there really is a breadth of bloom times that almost spans (laughs) most of the year. That's, that's pretty impressive for, you know, one geographic area and one genus. I mean, that's, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. And there were several specific goals of the breeders of the Auburn Azalea series, but one of them was to fill in the bloom calendar. Mm. And so, you know, you can select for ones that bloom, you know, this week and the next week and the next week and the next week and really make sure there aren't any gaps. And so that's something that I'm able to watch again in the garden and select for and breed for. And, you know, you think you've got it all on time and then every year it's a little bit different. (laughs) but what gets me over and over is trying to get my blue irises and my orange azaleas to stand next to each other and bloom <laughs> at the
1: same time. You know, they just won't do it. Uh, that's awesome. I love those like one-off botanical goals uh, of, of a mm-hmm. garden and plantsman like you. But that's that's really interesting too to think about it from a breeding perspective because that's the other part that amazes me is thinking about combining traits and saying, you know, you might not know like is this Mendelian genetics? Do we even know what the inheritance patterns are? But I kind of like this quality of this one and I kind of like the quality of this one like that you can say, I want the heat tolerance of a Southern species, but the size of the flowers from one of these cultivars and know with some level of... I don't even know if you can call it confidence, but a few of those seedlings might do that. That to me is really exciting. But then you add to it that we are starting to sequence some of these genomes, at least looking at chromosome counts. And and that can only help improve this process of understanding and improving and and getting more azaleas on the landscape.
0: Yeah, and there is a longstanding research project that's been funded by the Azalea Society of America and the American Rhododendron Society with uh, John and Sally Perkins have been doing these test crosses and trying to figure out what the most likely combinations are that are going to work. And, you know, those chromosome counts give you your ploidy. And so there's a lot of diploid plants and tetraploid plants Mm. out in the world. And you wouldn't think they would be producing viable offspring, but there's also these triploid bridges they find somewhere where there's plants that allow gene flow between these two separate gene pools. That's that's the kind of exciting stuff that's, in the garden and in the woods and, you know, just starting to come out in this ongoing research. Wow.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's cool that it's both like natural and human led experiments and sort of how species interbreed and work together and what can possibly come from that. And so with that in mind, I mean, when you think about going from a single cross that you have just guided to getting seeds, to growing this material up? I mean, what is that waiting period usually from germination to the first time you get to see flowers on this? Or does it vary depending on the cross or species you're working with?
0: Yeah, it varies greatly depending on the species (laughs) and depending on the grower because there's people out there that are a lot better than me (laughs) at these plants to grow fast. I I have to wear a lot of hats. And so the uh, pushing the azaleas is kind of on the side. And right now our nursery is small. When I get a little more room, I can push them a little harder and make them grow faster. <laughs> but for some of the slow growers, you know, five years would be good. Oh. But for some of the fast growers like Cadenza and Ostranium, people can get those cut to flower from seed. Three years would probably be hmm. the fastest. Okay,
1: so but, you're not you're not like waiting ten years to see the fruits of your labor.
0: Oh no, I am. Yeah, people are better at it than me.
1: Royal you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh boy. And then the other side of it too is uh, something you've worked on a bit is is trying to get clone material off of some of these plants because you know you can get uh, an accession from like one or two plants from one county, but then to build that up to something that you're not working with just two plants all of the time, um, or just tr- you, you find a sport like Millie Mac and go, ooh, that's fun. Let's see if we can do something with that. Uh, that's where you have to figure out how to maybe do some vegetative reproduction or cloning of these plants. And that as we kind of hinted at earlier on is something that can be kind of difficult within the azaleas for some.
0: So the collection that Smitty gave us, it wasn't that postage stamp collection where here's one Alabama azalea, this represents a species, but it was a collection of postage stamps that said here, this one Alabama azalea represents this County. And so now I've got 40 counties worth of Alabama azaleas, but Most of them have been transplanted from gardens or from the wild. And so they don't live forever. And I don't want his work to start winking out. So I did have to figure out how to root these things just to keep the collection from dwindling away Wow! because it is a lot of work to replace these things. And so there's a lot of variables that you can evaluate. But it seems like where you're growing these plants is one of the biggest things that affects what's going to make it work. So even if you figure something out that works in one place, it might work different in North Carolina than it does in Mobile, Alabama.
1: Dang.
0: So they can get away with a lot in Mobile. It's nice and hot and (laughs) wet down here. Those cuttings, they just jump
1: uh yeah it's funny to hear someone lament about the heat but <laughs> or not having it i should say but yeah and that's an important thing to remember too is just the variables involved in all of this and that's why you get on gardening groups and well well, this worked for me i don't know and everyone gives like advice like it's gospel but you know it's maybe gospel for that specific spot with that specific microclimate and soil condition uh not always going to be the case in every scenario and the, i mean the i would guess the challenge too is that at a the Arboretum there in Auburn, you're dealing with the soil type you've been given and it's not ideal. You don't have tons of topography and different habitat types within the Arboretum to experiment with. You kind of got to work with what you got. And so, you know, th- it sounds like at least to some extent, these have to be a little bit more adaptable than they've made out to be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they do, if they get some sun and they get some water, they'll grow. <laughs> so, and it's a sliding scale where the more sun they have, the more water they want. So you can have a big floral display in the sun if you water it until it's established or you can plant them in the shade and they'll probably do fine. As long as it's a little acidic and organic, they do pretty well. But down on the coast, you know, I've seen these things 20 feet tall, 20 feet across growing in a sand hill where at this size and age, they've definitely suffered major salt intrusion during hurricanes (laughs) and they're surviving on top of a sand hill with salt water on their feet. Wow. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for the diversity of habitats. These things can live. in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, you're really charmed to be in a state or a region of the world where you get to see a wide variety of what azaleas can do in the wild. And so, do you have any that really stand out to you as particular favorites or ones you're really excited about or ones that are like, Oh man, I want to work with this one till I retire or something like that. Or is it just kind of a hodgepodge of like, whatever I get my hands on that week is kind of where my interests go.
0: Well, it's the one that's in front of me is always the most intriguing, <laughs> but the Alabama Azalea really has not gotten old for me. Nice. I mean, it, Because it does go from being a short, stoloniferous thing that's knee-high in some places to other places where it's a 12-foot-tall umbrella you know, with a single stem. And so just totally different across its range and really, Hmm. really interesting and has the best fragrance. And, you know, white flowers with a yellow blotch are kind of simple, but it hasn't gotten old for me.
1: (laughs) I agree. Sometimes it's those subtle differences that are like just a subtle trait like splotching or, or spots on a, on a pedal that can really just, uh, I don't know what it is. It's very simple. You only get to see it a few times a year, but it's so my thing. Um, <laughs> but also it's to go with that much variability again, kind of thinking of within species are there good keys? I mean, if people want to learn how to try to identify these, I, I've maybe gotten my head wrapped around a small handful of species, but even then I'm like, I doubt myself. Every new one I see is slightly different enough to be like, what are you? Or is it just something you have to spend time with and, and get a feel for?
0: Well, uh, Alan Weekly's keys are excellent and we go to them because you know no one else is doing as much work ferreting it out, but there are still details and things that aren't getting addressed in there that we need more botanists to uh, get the data to build the keys on because it really is a huge playing field trying to see where these things are doing what they're doing and there's been this tendency to say oh, all that stuff must be a hybrid swarm yeah. that's what that's what all that is over there we're yeah. not going to worry about that right now and you know <laughs> we'll just focus on this characteristic and this characteristic and so. I expect to see changes in those descriptions to include more variability. But even with, you know, there's some really widespread species, like the Scosum goes from Texas to Maine. Mm. And a lot of variability. And there have been historical splittings and historical lumpings. And it's going to look different in the key one day, I bet. (laughs) And you can say that about several of the species, so... Yeah, A lot
1: of work yeah, yeah. It's exciting, though. I mean, especially if people do kind of start paying attention, the, just the potential to truly start to understand what natural diversity exists and what kind of you know, integrations and and those hybrids ones, that to me is always fun because you kind of see that a little bit with the oaks as well. Whereas it's like, if it's not fit and I'm just calling it a hybrid and walking away shrugging, going, well, oaks are promiscuous. What can you say? Which Mm -hmm. is kind of fun in its own way. But then, you know, you also have people that really like to see variability and go, no, that's different. That is a different species. So if you're not too invested in sort of the adherence to any one side of those, it can be a fun thing to watch play out in the coming years.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I'll be there I'm <laughs> sitting on the edge of my seat, waiting for specific names to call things because it does allow for better conservation. If you can attach a specific name to a specific thing. Right. And to understand that, you know, the azaleas that were in this Valley before they built this dam were unique. And that means that if we can call them something, then we can conserve them better. You know, then we could say just saying this type of this species from this valley is being conserved. That takes more words than most people are willing to listen to.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the taxonomic debate, there's a lot of like, emotions attached to it and a lot of arm waving about what it means but at the end of the day it's relationships between species and it's, it's what helps us understand biodiversity and it's that's you know if it's one species or two species that has conservation implications and going back to what you mentioned earlier on in terms of what your job entails accessions record keeping understanding what you have representing enough of that genetic diversity so that you can continue this line and make sure that when that county develops that specific valley you're not going to lose that material forever. I mean, that's where this stuff becomes important. It can be messy. Of course it is. Like you said, it's a human applied system on a messy, messy, big biological gray area, but it's important conversations to be having. And and I think people need to always keep that in mind when they're attaching sometimes some pretty vehement uh, emotions to the the debate. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. And And like we said, that species concept does fall apart a little bit, but mentioned oaks and those hybrids have names. Right. Yeah. Some, somebody's put that on a voucher and called it Exfernoei. <laughs> that's one that we have in the arboretum It's post oak times white oak, Yeah. naturally occurring. And so I, I've seen some hybrids. Right. These things are recognizable. And same thing with the pitcher plants. All those hybrids are named. So if people like to name things, come to Alabama. I'll, <laughs> I'll help you. I'll point you at the plants you can write them up. It'll be
1: so fun. Very exciting. So with that in mind, if people want to find out more about your work, about the work going on at Auburn's Arboretum, or just more about Azaleas, I mean, what are some resources? Obviously, we'll save everyone the trouble of having to remember this or you having to spout links and stuff uh, by putting them in the show notes. But where, where do you recommend they find out more?
0: Well, I recommend joining a club for starters. Azalea Society of America. Yes. All over the place. Azaleas.org is their website. Uh, you can find plenty of great information on there. American Rodent Ninja Society is nice, too. But if you want specific work about what we're doing at the Arboretum, then our website is actually auburn.edu COSAM Arboretum. We're in the College of Science and Mathematics. Okay. So we have a forestry department and a horticulture department, but we're linked closer to the uh, botany world. So it's a nice place to be as a public garden.
1: Excellent. And again, all of those links I can put in the show notes for the episode. But Patrick, thank you for taking a deep dive on this amazing group of plants with us and and getting people excited about it and, and really kind of emphasizing the importance of, of conservation, horticulture, and science all coming together to benefit uh, an amazing group of plants with a ton of both aesthetic and ecological value it's it's really great so thank you for all the work that you're putting in I know you wear many hats but uh, those all hats are lucky to be on your head <laughs> and have a, a a fan of plants on their side
0: well I do enjoy wearing them and uh talking about them too so thanks for having me on
1: well great yeah we'll have to have you back on to talk about all of the other stuff you have to do on a weekly basis so uh when you're uh when you finally find time to sleep and rest up let me know when your schedule opens back up <laughs> all right We'll right. do cheers
0: cheers
1: all right that's it for this week what a great conversation and what a great group of plants now don't forget there are plenty of azaleas native to other parts of the world we just mostly focused on the north american species because of course we're both living in north america and experiencing them on a much more personal basis i thank patrick for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us and of course, you can find all of the relevant information in the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplantscom podcast. If you're enjoying the show and you want to make sure it has a future, consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash I couldn't be doing it without the supporters that give a little bit of financial incentive each and every month. There's also stickers, merch, and my book for sale as well, Indefense of Plants and Exploration into the Wonder of Plants. Once again, just check the show notes. All of the relevant links are there so you don't have to go Googling your way to finding it. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in because as always, so many good conversations just over the horizon. But until next week, get outside, stay healthy, and be good to each other. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.